This is Ringtones. Welcome to episode 14 of the All Boxing No Bullshit podcast. I'm your host and sharp-dressed man, Jason Langendorf. I hope you're doing well. I hope I hope you're okay out there. Um, it's a little rough. It's a little dicey out there still. Uh, feels like just kind of darkness all around us. And uh, I'm looking forward to the day when I don't have to record one of these where I feel like the sky's falling all around me. Um, in the meantime, everybody stay safe, be cool. Um, and, and maybe we can talk a little boxing in the meantime. Uh, we've got a great guest. We've got another great guest. I don't know how we do it. Truly. We've got Kathy Duva with us today. Kathy began her career as a sports writer and moved into publicity working with her husband, Dan, the founder of Main Events Promotions. Uh, she's now the CEO and owner of Main Events, and she's entering the International Boxing Hall of Fame. Uh, she, she was set to enter this month, like right around now. Um, like everything else, you know, the world's kind of kind of put on hold. So we're going to have to wait to see Kathy inducted till till next June. Uh, but she's part of the class of 2020, and uh, we're excited to talk to her. But first, and now we pick up the conversation with Kathy Duva. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. No complaints. I'm uh, I'm by the shore, so it's it's really nice here. I'm uh, I'm here with my dog, and we're having a good time. (laughs) Good. You're you're in New Jersey, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Kind of a stone's throw from all the craziness, though. Oh, I can see, I, I can't see the crazy, I can see New York City from where I am, <laughs> but in uh, Staten Island and all kinds of places, but uh, it's, I've got my TV on 24-7 just about, so right, keeping track right. of the world, but yeah, where are you? Where do you live? I'm in Chicago, or I'm, out, I'm, I'm outside of Chicago, I'm in the suburbs. Oh, good, okay, so you're, <clears throat> so you're like me, you're not right in it. Yeah, in it. not not really, although we, we had some we had our own kind of scaled down version of craziness, you know, kind of in our backyard. So oh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's been, it's been something. And I mean, even just with, with all the COVID and all that, it's, it just seems like it's been, you know, we're living in a movie. Yeah. It's surreal. <laughs> it really is. I'm kind of happy to sit here and, and I feel like I'm, I'm so privileged that I don't have to live it day to day, but, at the same time, it's just, I don't know what to make of any of it. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough deal because I, I have strong opinions about all of it and, and I want to do my part, but you also kind of feel a little helpless. And Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I got, I got kids at home and, you know, yeah. mortgage and all that. And that, I mean, that's, those are just excuses and it's just an easy way to say, well, you know, let somebody yeah. else do it. But, uh, but yeah, it's tough. Well, I think people that are a lot younger than us and have a lot less to think about are usually the ones that lead these things and that's their role. But I think when you're I was right. young, my generation that was doing it. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And I, and it's funny because you I think the, the pushback is always, Oh, these you know, these kids don't know any better. They don't you know, they're rabble rousers, whatever you know, whatever you want to call it. And it's kinda like No, they're they're the ones they're they're at the perfect age to see what's going on around them 
and then also, like you said, kind of had the opportunity to, to do something about it and really kind of, you know, plant the flag, I guess. And, you know, God bless them. My generation used to be a lot smarter. I don't know what happened to it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've got friends that literally, I can't even talk to them anymore. I don't know who they are. I know. I know. It's tough because I, I, I guess there's probably a little thread of whatever people wind up becoming, they, they, they probably always had at least a little bit of that in them, but they must you, sort of, you sort of harden, I don't know, something as you get older and, and it's like you get set in your ways. I, I don't know. I, I can't even begin to explain. Also, you know, <laughs> to me, like Facebook was the worst invention in the world because it <laughs> gave me too much information about people that I didn't know that much about. <laughs> and it's to the point where like, class reunion good god i wouldn't go to one of those because because a family reunion i mean <laughs> right. that's, that's my biggest problem <laughs> no i well that's yeah that too um it's just yeah it's it's just like like there's people that i wouldn't have known what they thought about things you know and it would have been fine and i would have been happy to see them and we wouldn't have talked about politics i would have no idea that they were you know mad racist psychos isn't, and, it, isn't it weird how that's just changed the dynamic? Oh, it's awful. I, I really think it's the worst thing that ever happened. <laughs> I, I, it's I funny because I, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, 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 an addict on Twitter. Like I, it probably dominates too much of my life. Facebook <laughs> is one of those things for whatever reason, it's just, it's just a different vibe. And I got on there first and it's like, Oh yeah, this would be a good, good way to like share pictures of my kids with my family. And it, it really went sideways fast. Oh, it's toxic. It's terrible. It really is. Yeah. I have, I had a friend who, who passed away before she died. She ended up like never speaking to her son again over something she posted on Facebook. Oh my God. And, it, and it's so tragic and so stupid. And it was like, my God, you know, because you posted something on Facebook and then he posted something on Facebook or his wife posted something. And it's like, get in a fucking room and talk to each other until this is over. But, but they couldn't. And it's so sad. Well, it um, just gives, it gives people an opportunity to really put themselves out there in a, in a cute and trite and clever and extreme way. There's no room for nuance and, and people, it's just too easy to, to kind of flippantly throw something up there and then everybody is going to react and yeah. you know I, I'm I'm as guilty as anyone of course I'm going to say what my my views though are, are the right ones they're the good ones so well, of course they are <laughs> so it's everybody else's problem it is no I you know I I I, I have I've actually I have a, a Facebook account that my office made for me I've literally never posted anything on it and I rarely look at it and every time I do I regret it um <laughs> I do go on Twitter follow that more um I don't know why I find that less offensive. Uh, more, more because I'm following a lot of people I don't know, so it's okay. But um, the people I know, it's just like, I, I like them less and less. And it's a shame because they're people who used to be important in my life and who used to be, you know, really close. And you get to the point where it's so out there and Trump has just made it worse, where it's just hard to be in the same room because it's really hard for it not to come up. Right. Yeah, um, it, it, it's just you know? it's too easy for it to be divisive. Yeah, especially in times like this, when it's hard not to talk about the stuff that's going on. Uh, I just, I don't know. I, well, and, and especially have, because we're, we can't talk face-to-face -face as much as we used to. You're sort of thrown into 
I mean, right now that's where I'm getting most of my interaction outside of my own, you know, close knit family. I'm on right. Twitter. I have an opposite problem. I, I don't have much family because I was an only child and I was adopted. But in the last year, my my two years, you know, my, my kids found all my family. So, oh, wow. So on both sides, which is really cool. Um, but, and I've gotten to know all these new people, but it's this, there's this political aspect of it, you know, where like, I, I don't want to know what you're, I don't want to know about your politics, don't tell me. Some of them are, are you know, some of them are like diehard Trump supporters. Some, right. some are the opposite. Some I just don't know and I don't want to ask. <laughs> I, I, can I tell you a really quick story? Yeah. Sure. I, I worked with a guy years ago who he was in the same situation and he sought out, uh, his, I think his mom's side, wound up landing in the middle of a family reunion with people that he was meeting for the first time. Mm-hmm. And he was blown away because it was, they were all, you know, these sort of like flaming redhead Irish, you know, types uh-huh. from, from the South. And you know, this guy this was a guy from the Midwest from, from up here. I think, you know, if he wasn't originally from the city, he'd become citified. And so he, he just was like, man, I, he goes, I was just a fish out of water. He goes, I'm looking around at all these people that look just like me, but I didn't, I couldn't relate to anybody. Well, and I'm finding it's like some of them I can and some of them I can't. I've met family in Ireland who I related to, like I've known them my whole life. I have family um, on the Italian side, they're, they're all from Jersey City, um, who, you know, like who I really don't want to be around anymore. Yeah. And, and who I, my, my, as my son calls them, the white trash family. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I just keep thanking God that, that you know, that my mother gave me up <laughs> a lot of them um and then others you know i adore i have a brother um, a brother's son who i absolutely adore um and his daughter who's become really close with me and my daughters and you know there's, there's some wonderful things that come of it um but then i thought the, you know the one brother up in connecticut who's a big trump supporter who told me this summer well if it ain't broke you know don't fix it and i just i still wanted to send him a tech you know text so oh, is it broke yet yeah. But I haven't, because I know that you don't. <laughs> Why would I want to get in a fight with this guy? I hardly know. Yeah, um, and it's know? just, I, I think it's the same on both sides. Like, you're, there's only a slim percentage of the people in the middle that you're going to maybe be able to sway a little bit one way or the other. Yeah, but everybody else is going to be kind of entrenched, so. You can't say anybody. They, they are, I can't understand it. And I come from a town that's in the middle of New Jersey that's like a little town of Republicans. And I have a lot of friends whose parents were like Republican, Republican, uh, you know, mayors and uh, whatever, you know, if you're on the police force, whatever, then you, can, you have to be a Republican in those places. And I, these are my lifelong friends and I look around and I'm like, I don't even know you people. I, I don't understand. How do we all grow up in the same situation in the same, you know, went to the same school, had all the same friends and, and, and it's more the men than the women. Yeah. The women are still sane. It's the men that are crazy. So, well, isn't that kind of the way it just goes, yeah. not even outside of politics? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're, we're all kind of assholes in one one form or another. <laughs> yeah, I knew that, but you know, it was. <laughs> I didn't think they were all racist assholes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We just sort of come right down with it. That's what it is. 
Well, it's um, also, it seems like Republican means something, and not to get too far too deep into this, but it seems like it means something different than what it did 30 years ago. Yeah, it really does. Yes, but, it really, really does. Anyway, let's, let's, we'll, we'll leave that yeah. where it's at. Um, okay. So you said you're, you're originally from, uh, from around uh, where you're at right now, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, my, 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 my primary home is in Little Falls, and that is right next to Totoa, which is where I grew up. So is Danny, my husband. Do you, do you feel like there's a, uh, I don't know, like a, like an East Coast sensibility or, or, yeah, I'm from Jersey. I mean, we're, we're all the same. <laughs> it's true. We're very different from other people. We're very in your face. Um, not, not, not a lot of, uh, what I put it, small talk, polite, you know, we're, we're not. It's just, but as Jolene, his own from my staff has pointed out, you know, all the reality shows are people from Jersey. That's what everybody wants to be. <laughs> Even right. the people on Jersey Shore weren't really from New Jersey. Um, they were from Staten Island, which is very close, but um, but a different place. Now, there is just a sensibility about people from New Jersey. You spot them, you know, the second you, you start talking to them. And, and I think we, we all, yeah, we all have that in common with each other. Well, especially <laughs> as, a, as a Midwestern boy. I mean, I, I'm... I've got my, my manners that I grew up with and, you know, all the, all the ways that you're supposed to kind of, uh, you know, mollify the people around you. I, I think you, when you, when you see that, it's like, damn, I really wish I could say what I want to say. Like if I could really just pop off like that, that'd be great. Yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's also that the, the culture I grew up in was this like, you know, Italian, Irish American community that um, is also the, the, the part of New Jersey that I'm from. So, um, I think the, the, the Italians and the Irish are very different, um, but particularly the Italian side, there's just a, a real cultural willingness to say whatever it is you're thinking loudly and <laughs> to make sure everyone understands exactly what it is you, you mean and think, um, where, whereas the Irish people are, are a, little, a little, little, little more reticent to do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's, but, but at least you, you, you know, everybody knows where you stand. They absolutely do. Uh, but, you know, it's like I see these things. I, I went to a, a funeral and you know, I told you I'm, I'm meeting my family that I've never met. And I went to an Irish American funeral last summer and everybody was so, um, everybody was so reserved. You know, I'm the, I'm the Italian. I walked in and started hugging everybody. That's what you do. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm hugging. And they're all like looking at me and all stiffening up. Like, what you doing? What you doing? Like, you don't talk about it. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't say anything about it. Because that, that's, that's just kind of like, the, there are minor differences in these cultures. But this, the New Jersey Italian culture is very specific. And that's, right. <laughs> and that's, that's what I grew up with. <laughs> well, the Italian Irish, you get to, you get to say what you want and, and, and air it all out and then you get to feel guilty about it on the irish side <laughs> well or the catholic side no, because, right. Yeah. yeah right yeah now we got it both but we eat well and we drink well I, I, we italian irish so <laughs> got a little bit of both yeah well i guess I, I must have more than i realized in myself <laughs> <laughs> so you've been in the business for about 40 years now right yeah more than that now more than that now. So, but mostly as the CEO and the owner of main events. No, no, mostly as uh, the uh, the publicist. My my late husband Dan was the founder, you know, of the company, and uh, you know, I was I was 
dating him when he founded it and, and married him shortly thereafter. Uh, so we always worked together, but I didn't, you know, he passed away in 96 and I didn't t take over, you know, I, I be te technically became this, the, uh, I guess the chairman of the board at that point. Um, I didn't really take over control of the company until much later. Uh, he, he died and, uh, and, I, and I went to law school thinking I was going to get a career. And uh, once I finished school, um, the company was still going, but there were problems. And, and in the end, I, I came back and I took it over. And so I really didn't take take real control of the company until around 2002. Okay. So, see, so yeah, I knew all of that. I just didn't, I guess I wasn't thinking of the timeline. Well, uh, like I said, in, I, the company, you know, I, I typed up the papers when the company was incorporated. But, um, <laughs> but I didn't, you know, I didn't run anything um, certainly until around you know i hired people to to run the day-to-day -day for a while there between 96 and 2001 or so and then 2002 was when i really just deserted myself and really became the person who was the boss okay so i want to go to a, a kind of the scandalous part of your resume though you used to be a journalist that's true that's how <laughs> i started <laughs> how uh how did the transition happen <sighs> Well, because I was a journalist, um, I liked sports and because I was working at a local uh, weekly newspaper and the local, the sports editor there was very nice. And, and he uh, let me start and believe me, let me is the word because it was unheard of at the time, um, you know, in, in 1976 to have a woman writing sports stories. Uh, so I did. And uh, in the end, I got a job uh, at the New York, in the Jersey edition of the New York Daily News as a, like a stringer, a freelancer. Okay. And I was writing about women athletes. And so up until then, you know, my father-in-law was, Lou Duva was, he was promoting fights locally. Um, he was, uh, he would hire, he would hire publicists like Marie Goodman. Uh, Bobby, I don't know if you know Bobby Goodman, it was his father. He was an old time publicist who worked for Don King. And he would hire guys like that to write a press release and, and he would pay them a hundred dollars, which was an extravagant sum at the time. No kidding. And, and I said, listen, why are you giving this guy all this money? I could write better than this. And, and because they were on top of everything else, they were just poorly written. And, uh, and, and, and they weren't particularly, I didn't see them as being particularly helpful. Um, but he wouldn't let me um, because, you know, women weren't supposed to be writing this thing, weren't supposed to do this stuff. Right. So I ended up, um, while I was still working for the newspaper, <clears throat> I got a job. I left the newspaper. I got a job as a publicist uh, for a local college. And so I learned more about how you do publicity. And, and then he saw my byline in the New York Daily News in the sports section, and that convinced him that I could write press releases for him. So I started that way. And then it wasn't long before my husband, you know, decided to start main events, take over the business. And uh, at that point, you know, that, that was my job. That was the thing I knew how to do. So I started uh, mending relationships between my father-in-law and all the, mo the local press. <laughs> because, <laughs> because Lou being someone who always said what he thought, um, you know, he, he was a little rough around the edges. Um, that was kind of my first role, you know, and then I, I started to, to recognize that, um, that I could, I could do the things that, uh, that publicists did in other businesses, like, you know, put together a, a, a press guy and, and help the reporters do their job. And cause I knew what their job was, I was able to know what they needed. And I started to, uh, you know, 
I started, I started to do that. And, and, and it's funny, my, 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 my great moment in my life was when my father-in-law and I were at a fight and he saw Murray Goodman, the guy who had been his, you know, had done his publicity for him. And he just said to him, here, you should talk to my daughter-in-law. She can, she can, uh, you know, she can show you around. She can teach you a few things. That's great. And, and that made me feel good. Yeah. yeah. But, but uh, and anyway, so that's how I started. And, you know, we, we all got jobs in the family based on what our skill set was at the moment. Right. <laughs> so that was mine. Well, you eventually came to the, the business side, obviously. And as somebody who has kind of worked, I guess, in all sides, journalism, marketing, business, I mean, you, I would say you have a pretty unique perspective. Have, have you noticed a change in boxing's relationship with the media over, I don't know, the past oh. 20 or 30 years? Lord, yes. Yeah. Oh my God! You know, part of part of the fun, frankly, of, of no offense to any of the guys that are doing this now, but part of the fun of going to the fights, there was this large media contingent, and, and, and a lot of them were these very erudite, very smart people who who were uh, clever and fun, and you know, their jobs were different. They 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 just had to write one story a day. So generally, they would all write. They'd file their stories and go head for the bar, and um, and so we would just sit around and, and we, you know, our work ended. It wasn't like we were doing, trying to publicize a fight 24 seven. Once, once the weigh-in was over, we were done for the day, you know? Right. And uh, so we would, and when we went to these big fights, some of the reporters would show up a week before the fight. We would be there three weeks before the fight. So this was like a, a big part of our, our social life, socializing with these people. And we used to have so much fun with them. Um, there was not, as much rancor as there is now between right. at least between us and the press I, I that may not have been true for all the reporters and there were certain ones who absolutely were the bane of my existence um <laughs> <laughs> oh no doubt um but there were others that you know that were um like i said they were such they were they were fun people they were they were cool they were uh people you enjoyed talking to and you could you could disagree politely and you could still go share your drink together. You know, I, I, I would spend a lot of my time, um, my job for the most part was just calling reporters up right. all day long and talking to them. So, you know, you, you became friends. It wasn't like I just tossed off an email and expected a story to pop up on the other end. Um, so I, I'll be honest with you. I've, I've had a tough time with this. And I don't know that the average fan sees the sort of conflicts of interest and incestuous relationships there <laughs> like that, yeah, there that are some. come out of that and how difficult it is to navigate that because it just from my perspective I know for a long time I I bucked against any sort of friendliness with with publicists promoters those sorts of things just because I felt like it, there was a line that shouldn't be crossed there also is a certain amount of interaction that you have to you, you've got to dive in to get to know everybody involved and to make the connections to, to get the stories. And, and I'm not talking about just access. I mean, just to know what's happening in the sport. Back then though, again, I, I don't, there, there were, there were insistuous relationships, not as many as there are now because there were, there were publications that employed people and paid yeah. them a good wage, you know? So, so while we would be friendly and we would, you know, we would enjoy each other's company a lot of the time, there still was there was a line and everybody knew which which side we were all on i always felt my job was to make it easier for the reporters to do their job 
and I always felt, and, and my husband and I believed that, you know, having good relationships with the press was, was important to the, to the survival of our business. We needed the reporters. I know I talked to some, some promoters today and they, their attitude is, well, you know, we can do everything online and we don't need the press anymore. So have right. them. And I think that's very foolish and sh- short-sighted. And I, I have, I've never looked at it that way and I still don't. Um, so I want to ask you why though, why, why do you feel that way? Well, because in the end, our job is to tell stories. It's telling stories is what makes people interested in whatever it is you are selling, right? Um, you're interested in a fighter because there's some story that I have, hopefully, if I've done my job right, presented to you that you can tell. And, and if the reporter tells that story to the reader, uh, then I'm much more likely to, to, to find that that reader is inclined to, to tune into the fight. <laughs> you know, I gotta, you've got to give people a reason to care. Yeah. And the reporters are, are, I think, very important um, as, a, as a link in that chain of taking that story to other people. And yes, you can do it to some extent with social media, but it's very hard to tell a story with a tweet. Um, you know, I, we find like, I've, we found like Twitter is very effective for tune-ins to remind people it's, it's coming on, turn on the TV, very effective. But it's not effective when it, when it comes to just trying to tell the story of a person because that just takes more space. It takes more, you know, more engagement. Um, so, you know, we, we're constantly trying to figure out, you know, how to, how to make this reporter, this fighter's story interesting enough that people are going to want to take the time to watch him or her in, in their boxing match. And uh, I, I don't know how you, how you do that by just cutting the press out completely. It's interesting because there are ways to do it with video. There, you could have um, in-house writers if if you chose, I suppose. But I think also, I think boxing fans in particular are pretty sophisticated. At least, at least in ter- they they can sniff out bullshit. So, sure. so if you're, it's almost like anything that you put out, they're going to be at least skeptical of. Uh, you know, I was talking to a publicist yesterday, just yesterday about this and trying to kind of control the narrative and saying how, you know, a lot of times reporters just want to go over after whatever's salacious. And it's like, there's an That's element of that. It's what, you know, what sells, but it's also not just what sells. It's okay. If this is, if this happens to be important and it's salacious, like then that's still the news, you know? <laughs> Look, I, I, there's a tension. Obviously, we're trying to control the narrative, and you, you don't want us to control it. That's give. That's a given, okay? Yeah. But that's just, that's where we start, okay? But there are these wonderful times when we can, we can meet in the same place. And yeah. yeah. And when that happens, um, then some fabulous, uh, you know, feature gets done and ends up on a platform where more and more people get to see it. So. Uh, and, and also, like, I've always felt, and this might be partly because I started as a reporter and then I became a publicist, so I've really seen every side of this. I, am, I guess I'm sensitive to what, what the reporters need and what the publicists need, you know? I have seen it from both sides. So That's what I was going to ask you. Is it, is it more empathy? Is it kind of a recognition of the media's value? Is it just your personal style or is it just kind of a combination of all the above? Well, it's, it's the way I, I, I decided to approach being a publicist from the start, um, which was, you know, 
which was to, to take the attitude that, well, I understand that, I, I understand what the reporter's job is. My job here is to facilitate it. My job is to um, hopefully, you know, suggest an angle of the story that's gonna, uh, that's gonna result in, in an interesting story to read. And also what I have learned in all these years, and I think a lot of my, a lot of other people who do this for a living don't, don't understand, maybe because they didn't have that experience, is that even the, the, the lowliest reporters at the very bottom of the food chain someday become the editor. <laughs> right. That's or, a fair their, point. or their story, while it may not be on a platform that's so big that the whole world reads it, might get read by someone who is either going to write a similar story on a bigger platform or perhaps assign a similar story to a person on, on a bigger platform. So um, I can't tell you how many people started out as beat writers back when they had those who covered boxing, <laughs> who I deal with today, who are the editors at the papers, if they still have papers. Um, so, <laughs> I've, <laughs> so I've, you know, and, and then they, they go full, full circle and then they become, that, you know, they end up being, being you know, writing, writing for, for the, uh, the internet. That was the other thing I, I remember having, <laughs> In early 2000, I remember having a major argument with, I think it was Russ Greenberg, who we were, we were doing a fight and talking about the publicity we generated for it. And he said something to the effect of, you know, I don't want to hear anything about stuff on the internet. I just want to know about real stories. I remember telling him, like, you realize these are going to be the only people that cover us someday. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, that's you know, absolutely the case. Well, you could see it coming a mile away. I don't know yeah. how they didn't. And, uh, you know, but when you think about, the thing about the internet is while you may not have the, if you're writing about boxing on the internet, okay, you're not getting, you're not on a platform that the whole world's going to see, but the people who see it are going to be much more motivated to read what you wrote. Yes. So, so that's important. Um, I, and, and that doesn't mean I don't I don't want a headline on you know on a big platform somewhere that maybe they didn't read the story but the but the fighter's name got in their head and that and that that's good too, <laughs> but but I just feel like like it's it's a whole ecosystem. You you, you have to pay attention to the whole thing. Yes, I think that's a, that's a great way of putting it as a, as an ecosystem because it evolves. You know, it's everything that you just described. You know. There are no more beat writers at newspapers anymore for boxing. Um, no. The internet's kind of become this, this beast. It's great in some ways, but it also lowers the, the barrier of entry so that the quality across the board maybe has, has come down a little bit, at least the median quality. But it also sort of hurts on the, the reporter side. None of these people have steady jobs. If they're lucky, they're getting paid, but not much. Yeah, yeah. And... I think everybody's so desperate for, for access and be, being around and, and being known and heard and, and listened to. Um, it just, it really has kind of changed the, in my mind, it's changed the dynamic over time. Um, I don't know if it's for the better, for the worse. It's really hard to figure. It's like everything else in the journalism business. I, no one's figured it out yet. No. And my feeling has been all of us through this from, I mean, think the first big fight I worked on, Leonard Hearns, um, you know, it was 1981. There were reporters there from every country. There were, I mean, we, we would see, you know, in the press section, hundreds of reporters, yeah. all from legitimate papers, 
daily papers. I remember when, we, when I first got there and dealing with Andy Olson, who was, who was there then, um, you know, teaching me about where all these people were coming from. And he was looking at the circulations of these papers and give, assigning them based on how big their circulation was, you know, the seats that they were getting. And, um, and, and, and we had our first, you know, conflict where he was, he was giving preferential seats to like reporters from places like Japan. And I'm like, but I'm still in pay. At the time it was closed circuit, you know, here. Right. <laughs> I don't make any more money if this thing gets covered in Japan. Like Japan right. brought it. They bought the rights to it. They paid a lot of money too. But, you know, I, I'm looking, my interests here are, are, the, are to facilitate coverage for the people that are going to be writing stories. And, and they were appearing in every daily newspaper in the country. They sent their own photographers. We had so many photographers that, that you know, place, getting them a place at ringside was like, oh my God. And at that time, I remember putting Ring Magazine and I guess it was KO Magazine, they were the only two boxing magazines at the time, giving them seats at ringside and having these people look at me like, say, what, like aghast, why are you giving them seats? They only have a few thousand, you know, subscri you know uh, subscribers or whatever. It's like, no, because like, because people, people who buy that really care about boxing. Like right. they're there covering everything. I'm not gonna just push them aside because this is a big event. And my approach to this has always been like that. Um, and it was, I guess it was Dan's too, because I learned everything from him. But it was just, you know, never take anybody for granted. And, um, and, and, and while I have had my share of conflicts with reporters, and there have been some buttes, uh, and Dan had some even bigger ones, um, <laughs> you know, some of the people that I, you know, that, that, that I had some use I remember one in particular who I won't mention who was the bane of my existence doesn't cover boxing anymore. But I'm still friendly with him, um, <laughs> you know, cause you can, you have respect for each other. And, and I guess, I guess what a, a lot of what's been lost is this, um, there, there was this, this kinship, this camaraderie that we all had with each other. And, and it, it, it really was, it was fun. Cause again, we were, we were, we were thrown together pretty often. That's yeah. the other thing. These people came to every fight. They would travel across the country and go to every event. So you were seeing the same people. Now I see the same people in LA when I go to LA. I see the same people in New York when I go to New York, but very little crossover. Yeah, it's, I, I had been hearing uh, the same story about, uh, I believe it was Bryn Jonathan Butler on his podcast mm -hmm. talking about Andre Ward. Um, someone did a feature on him recently and he wanted to know why, you know, someone came and spent a week with him in big bear or whatever. And he's, you know, having a conversation with him. He's like, this is, you know, this is great. Like you're really getting kind of like we're getting to know each other a little bit and said something offhandedly, like more, more places, more guys should do this. More reporters should do this. I don't know why they don't do this all the time. <laughs> I said, do you have any idea how, like, how things have changed like it just that's just not realistic anymore you know there's no See, there's no money on that the, side so and that used to be the norm when we had guys in camp like when holyfield was in camp i'm going way back but you know Whitaker or whatever big fights were coming up mm -hmm. the guys would come and be embedded in the camps for a while right that was normal you expected that to happen so um you, you kind of did have to be civil with each other <laughs> well and, and it's it changed though too along. It's changed as well, though, because of the, the, the finances of it. Now, there's no incentive on your side to, to make that availability for most 
particularly if if you feel that you can control the narrative better on your own or if or if uh, you I look at it I don't like, have that problem they well I don't mean you I mean I mean just I in general some at, people on the do, business yeah. Side. yeah yeah theoretically you control the narrative better and, and sometimes you know it's a wonderful thing to be able to do that but in the end like you said people can tell when there's bullshit and if this stuff's real it's more effective you can't turn somebody into something that he's not you know, you try to, I see a lot of people trying to sell a narrative for a fighter and it just isn't who the person is and it just doesn't work. Uh, I, I think fighters are all very special people that they wouldn't be where they are if they weren't very special people. Nobody took them by the hand and led them there and helped them. Um, most, unlike Andre Ward, maybe the one, one exception to that rule. Most right. of them just got there on their own and that makes them really interesting. Um, and, and, and they're all quite, individual you know they're real individuals they they all have they all have this amazing story and I, I if i could criticize you know my competitors it would be that they don't not all of them but some of them they don't they don't dig far enough to find the story and it used to be the reporters were, were kind of doing that work because they were spending time with them and getting to know them um today it's kind of more our job to let you know what that story is and so we main events as a company part of what we do is we, we we work with these guys until we figure out what their story is right and then and then we try to pass it along um i see a lot of a, a lot a lot of promoters that are out trying to promote every fighter in the world and every fight in the world they just don't have the time to, to sit there and, and do that um figure out who they are every now and then somebody will step up and he's just so he is just so find that you know if, that the story's going to come bursting out of his pores and everybody right. can see it but for the most part you gotta sit down and talk to people and find out what that story is and i it, invariably i don't care who it is every fighter i have ever been in a situation where we sat down and had the time to really talk really find out what makes him tick really find out where he came from and what he's doing and got him to start really talking about himself and telling the truth instead of what he thinks you want to hear invariably we've come away just blown away with the story and the stuff they said and and my biggest problem when because i still think of myself as a publicist i'm still the marketer that's my job <laughs> my biggest problem is, is how do i get these you know how do i tell these stories how do i get them out um because you can only do you know sometimes you can do it with video if you're very clever and if you have the, the resources and the ability to do that yeah but some stories just take a little longer and uh I, I, I don't know that, that is, that is always my, my, uh, my challenge as, as a marketer is, is, you know, how do I, how do I cr not create an image for somebody, bring out the image, that's, bring out what is already there and then package it in such a way that, that, it, that it comes across to other people. Yeah. I think it's just a, it's kind of a sign of the times. Everybody's trying to do more with less yeah. and there's a, what you described kind of getting to know a fighter that takes mm -hmm. time and it takes yeah. trust. Yeah. And if a reporter doesn't have the ability to invest that and very, very few do, right. You kind of have to rely on, on the, the promoter or the publicist. And so then there has to be a, a certain rapport there. Right. Um, but even that time and trust. <laughs> yeah. So our, our, the, the, the publicists we work with, whether they're in-house or, or people like at Keenan that we work with, or sometimes we work with Gail, um, you know, 
thank her. Oh, I don't know how to say her name. Uh, she's lovely though. You know, we work with these people and, and that's kind of, they, they all have the same ethic and attitude. Ed Keenan started working with main events back in, in the early 90s. Um, so uh, he, you know, he, he got that same kind of indoctrination and, and, and learned, you know, this is your job. You know, your, your job isn't to, to fight with the reporters. Your job is to, you know, figure out what it is they need and help them and make their job easier. That's the way I look at it. Yeah. And if you do that enough, then they'll, they'll be fair with you, which is all I ask. And yeah, sometimes you're going to get that salacious story and I'm going to hate that you have it, but, um, in the end, you know, we have to recognize that, you know, we, we, we have different roles to play and we're going to come back and have to deal with each other again. So right. we might as well find a way to make it, you know, make it, make it easier and, and just understand that and it's not just with the press, with everybody in the world, everybody's coming from a different place. Everybody has a different job, a different role. And you've got to understand, everybody wasn't put on earth to facilitate what it is I want. <laughs> right. I, I think there's also like a kind of a tacit understanding that this is boxing. You know, our salacious is different than, you know, <laughs> baseball salacious. So like there's a certain amount of if I've got a story that, that you're not in love with, it's probably not going to tear the whole house down for you. You know what oh, I mean? No, no, of course not. That's um, boxing. You're right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and, and I hate to say it, but boxing fans, um, you know, I mean, you look at, at some of the most popular fighters over the year, I mean, Tyson immediately comes to mind. Mm -hmm. Guy's got a lot of water under the bridge, so it's... But, oh, they love but the bad boys. Yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> I hate, again, salacious, you know, there's a certain amount of it that sells, and yeah. I don't even mean that in a in a kind of sticky, gross way, but just that's part of the fiber of boxing. I, as much as I hate to say it, it it's sure. where it's where, like you said, most of these guys have a story and it's usually kind of picking themselves up out of a, out of a tough situation and, and mm -hmm. making something out of it. Yeah. And I, 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 for one, you know, love finding those, those little nuggets and, and, and being able to say, yeah, here, look at this, write, write about this, my God, right. you know? And, and so um, I think that's part of what makes the job it's part of what draws me to it. I, I, I get, I get really bored with like boring people. <laughs> Cause I've been surrounded by so many characters as part of the Jersey upbringing, I guess. Um, and, uh, I, you know, they're characters, every one of them. I love it. <laughs> All right. Beautiful. Great conversation. Great conversation, but only part one of our conversation with Kathy Duva. Part two will post soon enough. Be sure to come back for that. Be looking for it very soon. I uh, want to say thank you to Kathy for her time and her thoughtfulness. Uh, always enlightening, always something, something new to learn from Kathy. Uh, and, and I appreciate that. If you appreciate it, let us know uh, whatever platform you're, you're listening to on us, you know, hit that follow button, smash that follow button as the kids say, um, come back and, and, and be sure you don't miss any other episodes. Um, you can follow us on, on social media too, the, the Twitter and the Facebook and the, well, that's it, but we're at ringtones pod. You can find us there. Uh, you know, shoot us, shoot us a note, tell us what you think, give us feedback, rate us, review us, 
on your uh, podcast platform. We dig that, and and it's good. It's good for us. Um, let us know what you think. Let us good or bad. I mean, good is better. But yeah, we'll we'll listen to it all. We'll listen to all the feedback. Uh, in all seriousness, I, I appreciate you listening. Stay safe out there. Until next time. Thank you.